Coming up next is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. Now, I first heard of Craig here in Wanaka when I was reading my grandson a story called The Wonky Donkey, and I was told I should go on YouTube. And I went on YouTube and typed in Wonky Donkey, and up came a video of this absolutely hilarious granny practically wetting herself, laughing as she read to her grandchild. And that was where I learned that Craig was a a local fella. And a big welcome to you, Craig. Thank you for sitting in the psychotherapist chair. My pleasure, Jerry. Thank you. Uh, It's great to have you here, Craig. And what was that all about with the granny? Tell us a bit about that. Well, I launched the book uh, with Scholastic and Katz, the illustrator, the three of us um, launched the book in 2009. And um, the book had actually sold a million copies before the Scottish granny got on it, uh, which was great. But she did a thing for me, which was very organic, and she just enjoyed my book. And her daughter was videoing her with her grandson on her lap. She obviously, you've seen the video, she just started to giggle and couldn't stop giggling. And, of course, that video, particular video, mainly on Facebook, but also on all different platforms, has been seen about half a billion times. And um, it launched the book overseas. And, um, yeah, it, it was the number one selling book in the world for about three weeks. Not just children's books, but it was it was selling uh, outselling Michelle Obama's autobiography and you know, Lee Child and all these amazing authors. It was outselling them for about three weeks. So it was only three weeks, but I'll take it. But as far as the children's book's concerned, it was the number one selling children's book in the world um, for 2018, 2019. It was just uh, craziness. And that was all due to a little organic video that a Scottish granny was seen in uh, reading my book to her grandchild. It was amazing. So much for planning your marketing, eh? (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Well, it's just incredible. So, um, and in fact, late last year, about 2022, when a few of the restrictions had lifted, I flew Janice and her daughter and Archer, who's now five and a half, the little redheaded grandson, and Janice's sister. I flew them over. Now, they live in Queensland, so it wasn't like I was flying them from Scotland. But um, I wanted to just, I spent 10 days with them. And um, just shouted them, you know, on places going to uh, to um, Milford Sound and going on the Ernst Law and going up the gondola and all those touristy uh, things. I tried to get them to jump off a bridge, but they wouldn't do that or, or get, even get on a jet boat. But they had a blast. You know, it was leading into summer and we had lovely evenings on the balcony here and we got the cheese and wine out. And we, I went and bought a bottle of Dom Perignon, which I'd never done before and celebrated that with some good central Otago, uh, um, like quartz reef um, bubbles as well. And we had a, we had great evenings, and I just got to know her a little bit better and her family. Um, and I'd met her before, but it was just an absolute pleasure having them over here as a little reward for they didn't even know what they were doing, you know. I mean, Janice didn't even know it was being recorded, let alone, you know. So it was just awesome. I love the naturalness of that. I wonder, what do you think it was about that video that grabbed people? Oh, just her laughter. I mean, you, you've heard it. It just, she's she's an ex-smoker. So she'd been given up smoking eight years ago, but that gave her that, 
you know, that real sort of wheezy laugh at the end. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just it was just hilarious. And you can't – I've watched that video many, many times now, as you can imagine. And um, it still makes me laugh, still makes me smile, still makes me go. You just can't help but she, her, her laughter is infectious. It was just brilliant. It reminded me a bit of the famous song called The Laughing Policeman. I don't know if you've ever heard that one. No. The oh, a, oh I think so. I think I have. It's an old one, isn't it? Really old yeah. one. And, and, yeah, uh, I think I have. When I run some of my groups, I have a laughter exercise. I get everyone to lie on the floor. I invite everyone. I don't get them. Um, but I invite them to lie on the floor, and they all have their head on someone else's belly. You can imagine how much fun that is right from the yeah. front. From the get-go, everyone's giggling and laughing. And then I put on the laughing policeman. And before you know it, everyone is laughing. Everyone's head is bobbing up and down. And the more they bob, the more funny they find it, until you instantly have a room full of people in total hilarity. It's just a wonderful song. Or maybe I'll start using your, your granny instead. I think when I watched it, Craig, the thing that really struck me was the absolute absurdity. I mean, her laugh was amazing. But added mm. to that, there was this absolute absurdity because little Archie, or Archer, his name was, I think you said, yeah, he couldn't have been more than six months old. He wouldn't have understood a single word of the story. No. So that just made it even more hilarious that here in a sitting room was a granny just wetting herself with laughter, holding a little child in her arms who hasn't a clue what's going on. And you can see it on his face. He looks at his nana every now and again and just goes, what? Because she's just laughing. And But that will be, look, there's some memories that are not, um, you can't remember them, but they become part of your makeup is who you are. And if you met Janice, which hopefully maybe one day you will, maybe she'll come back again, um, you'd understand what a lovely person she is. Yeah. Yeah, she absolutely struck me as someone who actually laughs a lot in her life and who really allows herself to enjoy the good things, the really important things, like a grandson. I think probably the real hero for me is Archer. As you described, I'm remembering his face and how I kept looking at his face. And to me, in many ways, he was the star of the show. But yeah, what you just said was something uh, really interesting, that we know things even when we can't remember them. And, and from my yeah. My psychotherapy world, uh, and certainly one that also started with bodywork and massage, that was my background for 15 years before I trained and qualified as a, as a psychotherapist, you know, the body remembers things that the mind doesn't have a story for. So we we do remember stuff and we carry stuff. And that's very important whenever we're talking about trauma or when we react to people. It's a very interesting thing. So, yeah, interesting that you would say that, that you, you connect with that idea that we carry things and we know things that aren't necessarily cognitive or rational or even with words, but they carried in a feeling or a sense in the body. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's um, – there's certain things that – and to this day, maybe you could help me with this. <laughs> I know that I'm carrying with me that I'm not sure exactly where where they're from, or maybe I am sure, but I can't be 100% sure. I, I think, oh, that might have happened in that incident or that incident or growing up in this environment or that environment, you know. Um, yeah, there's certain things that I know for sure inside me that I've still got a little bit of work to do. But the beautiful thing is, is I've managed to nail down some of the stuff that was causing problems when I was younger and have addressed those problems. 
and gone into them towards them as opposed to away from them. And in doing so, you realise they're not actually that big. Those problems aren't, for me at least, there'll be some other problems that I'm sure are big and have a lot of work, but I'm just talking about my own personal experience, that those problems that I had weren't that big to solve. And uh, we can talk about that if you like, but um, I think music in a big way has has helped me do that. It's a, a way of expressing myself through my art, and I'm sure other people can relate this to this in many ways, shapes, and form, um, whether it be through painting or dancing or whatever, but I've been able to express myself, and in doing so, um, not even realising, but been in therapy with myself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and really help myself get stuff out and also look back and acknowledge the younger self. And in my mind's eye, I've learned to go back and sit down with my young self and give him a cuddle. And it's funny because I wrote this song called The Heater, which is on Spotify and, and YouTube and all that sort of stuff. And um, it's about how my mum used to have a favourite spot on a heater in, in the house and what happened at that time. When I was about 30, I wrote a song about that moment. It took me three days to write it. It actually took me three days to write the last verse because I was just bawling. I was just bawling my eyes out for three days, pretty much. I sort of opened this thing up at a time where I was incredibly vulnerable and was worried. And getting that out helped me immensely and also taught me a lesson about how to get other stuff out. So, um, So that's what I've been doing over the last few years but there are stuff like getting back to what we were talking about before there is stuff that i'm not exactly sure where it's from you know like i can get angry sometimes very very quickly if if something um frustrates me or if i see someone specifically around being untruthful or being a bully you know if someone's being a bully or being untruthful that gets my blood boiling very quickly and so i'm learning to handle those situations in a calmer way, but that's still not 100%. And well, I'm not sure exactly where those things have come from, you know, not exactly sure. I've got a, an inkling, but, you know, not exactly sure. Well, yeah, wonderful. Um, I will come back to that in a moment, but okay. I, am, I am interested, because you mentioned it, I'm interested in that three days you spent with that heater song. I'm wondering, what was it that happened? Your mum sat near a heater, is that right? Can you explain? Yeah, so there was a spot that was like our throne. It's it's one of those Conway heaters, you know, like the big old box built like a brick proverbial. And, um, you know, you could sit on them. And the thing is, when you sat on them, it keeps your legs and your feet warm, you know. Um, And so that was kind of like a throne. And when mum wasn't sitting there, it would be like someone else would be sitting there. And then eventually... If everyone else wasn't sitting there, I'd get a chance to sit there as the youngest of six children. So mum raised six kids by herself in a state house. And um, she was on that heater one day when I came in from playing outside. And she had received a letter and she was crying. And um, I said to her, mum, what's wrong? I think I was about five or six years old. And she said, these are the three three sentences that she said that really stuck into my brain. She said, it's so hard. What's it all for? I feel like running away just like your dad did. And hearing that, I got a bit worried, <laughs> as you can imagine, because dad had left. And now, I, you know, mum was in a really weak spot and perhaps it wasn't the best thing to say 
to a five or six year old. And then she slid off the heater onto her knees and she just burst into tears. And I, I sat there gave, giving her a cuddle. And, um, you know, you can understand why she was in that space. I since found out once I wrote that song, because in the song I say maybe it was a bill or, you know, something like that that tipped her off. What it was is she'd been asking my dad for divorce papers for years and years and years and years, and he'd never signed them. And then he had posted them signed to her. And that's what tipped her over the edge. So you can understand why she said that to me. Nonetheless, it made a huge, profound impact on me. And I was worried. But we got, as the song says, we got through that day and a few more like it. And mum didn't leave. But there were points when I was an adult where something would happen, a particular feeling or a specific physical action, um, like someone dropping down to their knees would take me directly, you know, like if someone was even on a cricket field, someone would drop down to their knees in a specific way and I, that would take me back to that point. Or there was a specific feeling that I was getting from a conversation or something and it would take me back to that point. It was the most random stuff. There was a specific thing that someone would do that would mimic what mum had done in that time and it would take me back to that point. And it wasn't, I dealt with it a bit better, but it was still there. And so what I did is I said, I'm going to I'm gonna write about this. This is something. So I sat down and started writing about it. And as I said, it took me three days through tears and a blubbering mess before I got to the end of that song. Well, this is the funny thing. is, it, I thought it took me about four or five years before I could sing it publicly without crying. And then I let it alone for a while. And then one time someone asked me to play that song and I started to sing it. I got halfway through it and I couldn't sing it anymore because it brought that stuff back up again. Um, so it's still there to a point, but it's much better now. Yeah. Craig, thank you so much for sharing that really powerful and very moving story of your mum and you. You being confronted with your mum. I think in some ways there's nothing more devastating to a young child. You were, what, five years old? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing more devastating to a young child when the, the parent figure, especially when that's the only one left, when it sounds like your dad had already left, is that right? Yes, yeah, he yeah. already left. Yeah. So, you know, this is such a devastating thing for a young child and no blame whatsoever to your mum for breaking down like that whatsoever. There's no criticism of her. But from your point of view, I can imagine that was like a key moment, a seminal moment in your life. You've brought it up here. You've written a song about it. You've told us how you process it. And of course, you've told us about something amazing as well, Craig, which is the persistence of triggers. Everyone talks about trauma triggers these days, that something triggers us. Yeah. And we start to feel emotional. We go into a different state. I call it a nervous system state, but that's a bit scientific. We go into a kind of a different state of being when these triggers fire off. And we know something has affected us and we don't always know why, why we suddenly feel the way we do. And I've made trauma a particular part of my study, as you're aware. And these trauma triggers are uh, amazing. But but equally amazing is what we make of trauma and how we survive trauma and how we grow through trauma. And I'm just wondering, if you look back at that time and you look back at how big a moment that was, 
I'm wondering if you made any decisions about life in general, about yourself, about families, because often when trauma happens, it affects us and we make really big decisions sometimes around those traumas. I wonder, when have you looked back and seen how that might have affected the way you lived your life after the age of five, after oh, that? It totally affected the way I lived my life, um, for sure. I've written songs about that too. <laughs> I wrote a song about about the heater, but I also wrote a song called I Dream of You. And that's also online, if anyone wants to come and have a listen to that. And it talks about, it's not I Dream of You in the positive sense. It's almost like I'm at home alone. And I've worked out at that stage, the reason why I'm alone is because I don't want to be in a situation where I've hurt a woman like I saw my mum get hurt in that situation, like, for example, the heater, and there were many other situations. I don't want to be in a situation where I've hurt someone where my as bad as my mum got hurt. And so I would find that as soon as something got a little bit too serious, I would tend to sabotage that, or I'd just walk away from it. I wouldn't sabotage it necessarily. I'd just say, hey, listen, you know, this isn't working for me. And so... I never had a really, I mean, I did. I had a couple for six years uh, relationships with women, but nothing sort of super solid and serious because I think I put some walls up um, because I didn't want to get into a situation where I was hurting someone that bad. So as soon as it got to a point where we were talking about kids and things like that, especially kids, um, that's where I went, uh-uh, I'm not going to go here. And so I don't even think I did it consciously. Looking back at many, many situations, as the person I am now, I'm 51 now, looking back at a 22-year-old, you know, 23-year-old, half my age, I look at those moments there and I go, you know what, you probably ended that because of that thought. And so I wrote a song about it, which is, you know, I dream of you. And it talks about sitting at home alone. And uh, I dream of being with someone, but I'm not with them because the fear of causing that much pain to someone was so strong that it affected my relationships in the future. Yeah. So definitely, it definitely controlled my life for a long time uh, and maybe still does to a certain degree. And I'm still trying to get over that. But I feel like at least I've got my head around it now. At least I can see, you know. And now I go, am I doing this legitimately? Is there a good reason why I'm finishing this? Or is it because I'm worried that I'm going to cause pain? And some of those situations end up happening through no fault of anyone. You know, you're a different person. You grow apart. I don't know. Lots of people end up in situations where they break up. Yeah, for me, I, I was it was a real deep dive into into that. And now at least I feel like I've got my head wrapped around and I can look at why I'm doing things a little bit more objectively than just reactionary, just instinctually. Thank you so much, Craig, for sharing that. You're listening to Reality Check Radio. This is Jerry Pives. And on this episode of Real People, we have the children's author, Craig Smith, sitting in the psychotherapist chair. Craig, I wonder about 
what you've shared. And what's really interesting is last week I interviewed someone and they talked about a really tough time in their life and how creativity was what got them through it. And in fact, yes. this woman, she poured her creativity into creating a space that people could come to. And she opened up a whole coffee cart area in her garden and wow. she she made it beautiful. She put, you know, beautiful shells over this cart. And she had a passion for people being able to speak freely and without any censorship. And it was the creativity that took her from a place of, I think, overwhelmed and disempowered. And it took her into a good place. She channeled her distress, her upset into creativity. And here again, you're sharing with us such a beautiful story of how you get through things by singing and writing songs. Now, this isn't just some kind of sad old git singing about lost love and the raindrops, you know, as Billy Connolly once said. I remember him talking about that. I've had the great privilege of actually being at one of your sets where you sing to and play your music, your beautiful harmonica and guitar and singing. And I just want to let everyone know, go listen to this man's music. He's a real pro. He really does quality. i am made you into third person. I do apologize. But I just... It's okay. But your music is very beautiful. I will remember to my dying day, actually, watching you sing. It was only a few weeks ago. And there were people dancing and milling around. Everyone was having a great time and you were there. And I saw this eight-year-old child sitting on the grass filming you. And it was the most powerful moment for me because I knew that was your, I think, is she eight, your daughter? Yeah, my daughter, eight, yeah, Maya. Yeah. yeah, and she was filming her dad singing a beautiful song about her, I think it was. And I was mesmerized by, you know, how sometimes moments capture us and they they almost hypnotize us. And we stay in them for what feels like forever. They're these, what I call little forever moments. And this vignette of you singing and your daughter sitting there really touched me and probably triggered me in some deep way that I don't know about either. But it really, it was a very powerful and moving moment. So you did overcome this to some extent because you had yeah. a Yeah, I did. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, um, my daughter's mum and I are not together anymore. And that was just something that, you know, it was almost like my worst nightmare when that thing started to happen because I've been trying to avoid it for so long. You know, my dad left. And um, there was no financial support. There was no moral support. There was no ethical support of my mother from my dad. And that was the one thing I was going to make sure that I was there for my daughter as much as I could be. You know, my dad left when I was two. I didn't see him until I was 14. I saw him for three days. And then I saw him again when I was 21 for another seven days. So by the end of that time... Effectively, apart from the early, early days, you know, when I'm one and two, I'd never, I couldn't remember meeting my dad up until I was 14. And uh, yeah, so I was thinking to myself, I'm not going to put Maya in, the, in that situation. I'm going to be there as much as I can for her. And I feel like I've done that. Well, good on you, man. I don't think people fully understand the impact on men of their fathers leaving them when they're boys and leaving the family and the impact. I actually share this with you, a similar story, not the same. And mm. I think that what men have to overcome 
to be good partners and good dads when any learning or modeling of that was absent during childhood. People don't really understand what an incredible mountain that is to climb. Now, we're in New Zealand. New Zealand's a beautiful place. I'd like to talk to you about that as well. I know from your mm. song that you have a great connection <clears throat> with the land here, down here in Otago. But what I'm reaching for here is that the mountain, New Zealanders are happy to go out and do great things like jump off cliffs and go on jet boats and helicopters and climb mountains. We're famous for it, you know. But some of the real hard, hardest mountains of all to climb are the unknown territory of a, a young man, say in our 20s, at the age when we're, you know, we're programmed in many ways, the species, we're needed to keep this humanity alive, you know, and if, if we're not needed, yeah. our sperm certainly is. <laughs> it's like we're trying to climb this mountain of an unknown territory it's quite the difficult thing. And I, I just want to really acknowledge that journey. Um, I've seen you with your daughter and you're definitely there for her and your honesty around the challenge. And I really just, you know, if I was wearing a hat, I'd be taking it off to you uh, in respect. Oh, cheers, that journey. And I think a lot of men, a lot of men in New Zealand lost their fathers in all sorts of ways. Sometimes they physically left Sometimes they left to the booze and the alcohol. Mm. Sometimes they left in all sorts of other ways. In my history, I was a chorister in a cathedral in the UK when I grew up in the UK. And, and What's a chorister? What's a chorister? A chorister is a, is a wee lad that sings in cathedral services. Oh. Yeah. And it's it's like a prison sentence, except that if you like music and you and you like cathedrals and, and you like beautiful ritual, um, it's absolutely mm. heaven. And I must say, I, I really did love it. And every day I used to process past one of the most famous maps in the world. It's called the Mappa Mundi. It's the map of the world. It's a medieval map of the world. And it's it's completely amazing. But there's this place on the map that me and the other young choristers used to go and look at it because it had all these beautiful medieval drawings. It had, you know, a drawing of a foot with a head sticking out where the ankle was, you know, and these amazing medieval drawings. And in one place, a big gap in the map, and it said, here be dragons, here be oh, dragons, yeah. you know? And for us, it was like, that became the symbol for me of places that we don't know. And when, mm. we, when I think about being a man and being a father and a, and a husband and failing across all fronts, I'm sure, on many occasions, well, I know I failed on many occasions in all sorts of ways. When I think about that, for me growing up without a father, and for many men, I think that it's like when we enter relationships and we enter fatherhood, many of us have had an absence of modeling, or we've had some really bad modeling. You know, we've had some really bad examples yeah. And if we're really lucky, we've had a great example. And what I'm going for here is I'm talking about this mountain. And I think of here be dragons. And I don't think anyone really understands who hasn't gone through this, what it's like to navigate life as a, a father, as a husband, when there was a gap, there's an unknown part of the territory. I don't know if you can relate to any of that, uh, Craig. Yeah, yeah, I can. I Once again, through my art, I've written a song. Uh, this one I haven't recorded yet, but I hope to record it. And it's called It Takes a Village. And it's about, obviously, the old phrase, takes a village to raise a child. And what I reference in the song is 
all the men, mostly men, because my mum was there, you know, my mum was there, but all the men who stepped in in father figure situations, sometimes with just a kind word, just a, hey, it's okay, you know, just that was all it was. And sometimes, like I had a friend of my mum's here in Queenstown called Robert Blatch, and I called him um, a few years ago, and he tracked him down in Sydney just to thank him because he taught me how to drive. He taught me how to play tennis. He would allow me to go into his study, and he had some replica firearms, things like that, you know, and he was, you know, he, he was just a solid kind gentleman who filled a bit of a gap for me and then there's Gary Kernahan who taught me how to play guitar he was the caretaker at the Wakatip High School here love that guy to bits you know he taught me how to play guitar um I could just go on and on and on right down to a guy called Arthur Basting who he recently passed away from cancer and it was it was a bit sad for me but as it was for many many people and um he mentored me through just through my music and entering the music industry. He was actually the president of APRA for a while, which is the Australasian Performing Rights Association. They're the governing body that help uh, musicians in New Zealand and Australia, um, you know, register their work and all that sort of stuff. You know, um, they gather revenue um, for live performances and things like that for, for the artists. So he was the president of APRA, and he obviously saw something and just was was there for me when I needed when I needed it. So those are three examples of men that filled that space for me. So I would I wouldn't say I was hundred percent without a dad, because there was sort of jigsawed pieces from time to time in spaces where sometimes I desperately needed it. So that's why I wrote that song. It takes a village to raise a child. And at the end of the song, it says, like, what I did was I tracked all of those people down from my early childhood that I could, and I thanked them. I just rung them back up out of the blue. And Robert Blatch, for example, in Sydney, he was totally taken aback. And he was crying on the phone, and, yeah, um, and I was just telling him how much he, he meant to me. And he didn't even realise it. He was just a good guy seeing a young man uh, who needed a bit of direction and, you know, he, he didn't think, oh, this is what's needed. He just did it. And uh, and I thank him for that. Yeah. What a beautiful story, Craig. Uh, I'm really touched by how you sought after them and thanked them for that significant moment, which was very little to them, but it, it meant a lot to you. So, yeah. Yeah. Be- so, you're listening to Reality Check Radio, and I'm Jerry Pives. And on this episode of Real People, we have the children's author Craig Smith sitting in the psychotherapist chair. So I'm wondering, Craig, when you reflect on your life and you reflect on the influences on your life, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that has real meaning for you? What matters to you? There's three questions. They're all slightly interrelated, but the, the most important one is what gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> Well, we've touched on one. Um, the person that got me out of bed this morning was my daughter. <laughs> She's got to go to school. Um, <clears throat> there are days I, I, I share her 50-50 with her mum, and there are days where I don't have her. 
and I do definitely sleep in a little bit longer sometimes those days when I don't. So Maya gets me out of bed for all sorts of reasons. Um, but as far as when Maya's not around, um, you know, I love being creative. I love um, writing stuff that children and parents can enjoy together. So that's a big part of my motivation. But then depending on the situation, um, I love to go skiing. <laughs> I love paragliding. I do a bit of hunting and fishing from time to time. And I have a boat now. So I've got a little 4.3 metre stabby craft and um, take that out onto the lake from time to time. And, uh, yeah, there's lots of, um, I guess you'd call that play, but there's a lot of playtime in my life. And maybe that's something that's a reflection from my childhood as well, because although there was some playtime in my childhood, there were times where no time for play, I've got to make dinner, you know, or whatever. So because of that lack of play, maybe when I was a kid, um, maybe I'm making up for it nowadays. I don't know. Do they call that a midlife crisis? <laughs> I call it a midlife awakening. That's a much better way of putting it. I also think that it's very beautiful that, you know, I, I am a great believer in that any trauma actually is there for us to grow through and grow from and to, there's lessons for us to learn and we all learn very different lessons. And it's like when you were a young boy and you were confronted with that pain of your mother faced with the divorce papers and just the mountain of climbing everyday life with six children and on her own without support. And here you are, uh, an incredibly well-sold children's author, bringing mums and dads, and in my case, a granddad together yeah. with children to share lovely stories, not stories aimed at convincing anyone of anything except that mm. certainly from the wonky donkey story and other stories of yours that I've read, you know, it's more about the joy of being together and telling a story with beautiful illustrations, but also with a really playful, funny story in there. Yeah. You have another story about the water that drops on a little bear. What's the title of that one? Oh, the drizzly bear. The drizzly bear. And there's this, the book has to have a little button so you can hear the sound of the drop dropping on that drizzly bear. And I believe that just came out of you playing yourself with the sound of water dropping. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So actually it came from a movie called Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is a 1980s, I'm sure there's a few people out there. It was a very popular film in its day, Matthew Broderick. And there's a scene where Cameron, his friend, is in the stock market and he's totally disinterested in what's going on in the stock market. And they turn to him and he just goes, and then, um, and uh, and I thought, is that real? And I remember this was in the old days of VHS and I remember rewinding it and playing it, rewinding it and playing it, rewinding it and playing it, and watching him doing it and thinking, is that a sound effect? And I just sat there and after about a week, I think I managed to nail it. And uh, then I wrote a song about it years later. So about how, you know, it drips. And the, the metaphor in the book is there are some things that keep you awake at night. And in, in the Drizzly Bear's case, it's um, 
the water dripping in the cave and keeping him awake because it's raining. And it drops in his belly button, it drops up his nose and drops on his forehead, drops on his toes, all that sort of stuff. And then what he does, he gets a raincoat out and he puts his umbrella up. And I try and say this to most of the kids I play that song to. I say to them that my raincoat and my umbrella when I go to bed is I have a notepad beside the bed and I write all the things down that are things that are keeping me awake, that sort of drip, drip, drip into my head. And that was a piece of advice that was given to me years ago by a friend. And um, not only did it take things out of my head and on the paper, so then I knew I can, when I wake up in the morning, I won't forget these things that are important or urgent or just things that are, you know, troubling me. I can get back onto them in the morning. But now that they're out of my head, I can actually go to sleep. And so that worked. But then also that what that led to was, of course, I start writing about these things that are keeping me awake. And then that leads into my artwork where um, I start writing songs about them. So then it, it went from a one little line that I wrote on a piece of paper to then an entire song. So the drizzly beer is is quite deep in that respect, but I don't touch upon that. I just touch upon about the fact I do touch upon it just slightly, but it's not a big proponent of the book or the song. It's more about the playfulness of writing a song around around that, and um, and and just having a giggle. So same too with Wonky Donkey. It's more about the fun and the playfulness of Wonky Donkey and the use of language, as opposed to it's okay to be different which is the subtle message that is in the wonky donkey. You'll never see wonky donkey unhappy about his situation. Um, so that's basically how I work in all my little themes to my book. Some of them don't have themes at all. They're just ridiculousness. Very Spike Milligan-y, um, Monty Python-esque sort of just for the sake of getting a laugh, I do things. There's a book called Eating, and that book is totally all about that. And the song too. It's just it's just silliness. And uh, it gets people laughing, and that's the important thing as far as I'm concerned. And if kids are picking up the book because they're, cause they're laughing and they're excited, well, I don't care. If they're not getting any messages, the main thing is that they're, they're learning how to read and they're in, enjoying books. And they're able to share that with their family, and that's a big thing. And I get letters from people, particularly people with autistic children, because obviously the music aspect for autistic children is a big part, and it's a connection that lots of kids, but specifically autistic kids, um, I get a lot of letters from parents with autistic children and how, how it's helped them uh, in their life and it's brought moments with their children that perhaps they wouldn't have had otherwise and that's super special for me super special it's the biggest kick I can get when I hear that stuff and I think you're sharing with me and with listeners really what does get you out of bed in the morning which is the importance of relationship of humor and creativity and expression I absolutely yeah. I could listen to you all day, Craig. I'm intrigued as to what the umbrella meant for you. You said that the raincoat was how you put everything down on a piece of paper beside your bed. What was the umbrella for you? For you? 
Well, the, the raincoat and the umbrella are sort of, they're, they're both that one thing. They're, they're stopping the drips from hitting you in the head that keep you awake. Yep. So that's that's basically what it is. That, you know, nowadays I've moved on from, from a pen and paper. I've got, I have my phone by the bed, which I will then, if something's in my head and keeping me awake, I'll just pick it up, hit record and dictate into it. And that's a much quicker way and it doesn't wake me up as much. Those are the tools that I have. Then I go, right, I can deal with that in the morning. Yeah, I can relax now. This thing doesn't have to go round and round my head all bloody night keeping me awake because I know it's just going to be worse if I don't get a good night's sleep. So I need to just park this, and I'd usually park it on my phone or pen and paper, like I say. So those, that's my umbrella and my raincoat. So you're listening to Reality Check Radio, and my name is Jerry Pipes, and on this episode of Real People, we have the children's author Craig Smith sitting in the psychotherapist's chair, and we're learning something that I believe is a real powerful technique secret for managing stress and managing, you know, one of the greatest problems faced by modern society is actually sleep, sleep difficulties. And I could talk for three weeks on why we don't sleep and what might be contributing to that. But I've just heard, I think, one of the most powerful techniques for managing ourselves and managing our stress and even managing our trauma. Because if we can't sleep, then what happens is we actually don't process trauma. Sleep is so important. It's probably the thing that I focus on almost always with people I'm working with as a psychotherapist, I'm asking them about their sleep and how that is managing. Because I know the research tells us very clearly that we process sleep, we process trauma. A lot of trauma gets processed when we sleep well. And therefore, mm. if we don't sleep well, we're carrying more trauma than is necessary. It's something I write about in my book on trauma called uh, Touching Trauma, Building Resilience. And I've made trauma my lifetime study. And I think I've just heard a technique that should be written down in every self-help book or every book on healing or therapy or trauma, which is that, you know, how do I park my worries and my concerns? And Although you talk about, Craig, you talked about recording as well. Um, mm. I would say that although it wakes you up more if you wake up or you can't get to sleep, the physical act of writing has a magic all of its own, actually. It's physical mm. and it activates the body in certain ways that just the voice speaking perhaps doesn't. And the idea is that, you know, what Craig has said and as beautifully metaphored, really, in the, the story of the drizzly bear what Craig has shared with us is something that I would endorse massively, which is to write down your concerns and then literally leave them on the paper and leave them mm. on the side table beside the bed and give yourself some kind of permission to go to sleep. I should tell the listeners that this beautiful sound of the dropping water, Craig's actually just hitting his cheek, and, and there's actually a YouTube video on it. But come on, give us it one more time. It is so wonderful to hear. All right, here we go. <laughs> so you just, you just, you've got to black, block the back of your throat off. So if you were to push ear out of your mouth with your tongue, like that, that's you'd make that sound. So it's not a – so there's no ear coming out of your lungs. And you're making your mouth a little rounder inside, like that. And then you just give it a tap before you push the ear out. 
<laughs> I am not I've always, uh, I'm not I've always wanted to incorporate that into a song. So <laughs> then I, then I, yeah. <laughs> and and I think you spend a lot of time, Craig, as well as everything you've described. I believe you spend quite a lot of time traveling around and performing your sets. I think to, is it children and adults or is it a mixture? What, what do you do? Well, the stuff I do now is 95% for the children. And then there's a there's the odd gig like you saw the other night where I play um, a little bit for the more mature as well. But obviously within that, we, we sung a few kids' songs as well. So, yeah, most of the time. But I've, I've traveled, like, I'm, I mean, in 2016, I think I played, performed in the children's area of the Glastonbury Music Festival and toured around the UK for a couple of weeks and got right up to Manchester and Preston and played up there right down to Totnes um, uh, and played in, in places down there, played in London. Um, but then also a very small time in Canada and the States, although I'd love to go back there again. Um, but a lot of time I've toured in, in throughout Asia. It's probably quicker to tell you the countries I haven't put, toured in in Asia than it is to tell you the countries I have. That's how many I've uh, been to China many times um, and uh, in all of those countries throughout that area. And, of course, Australia and New Zealand. So I've toured around a lot with my music. And um, once Maya is a little bit older and she's no longer wanting to hang around with her dad much anymore, <laughs> then I think I'll have some time, maybe go away overseas for two months or something like that and start touring again. That's That's what I'd like to do. What do you like about doing that? What are the best moments in that life of when you're on the road and you're touring? Well, it's connected to what we were talking a little bit about earlier, where parents of children who are fans, who I have a huge impact on in their lives, you know. When I tour and I, I find, especially kids who maybe are a little less uh, fortunate for one reason or another, I tend to connect with them quite quickly and I just love being a part of their lives and I love being a part a positive solid safe sort of uh, thing that they can go to I think that's a big part of it you know when they pick up that book and they're jumping in in bed with mum or dad having a read to them or their nana <laughs> like we talked about with with Janice Clark earlier it's just these little moments that are created and um, yeah I, I mean I could spend hours just telling you some of the feedback I've got from from people, right, from very flippant stuff like, oh, I just love your song and I love the music and it's fun, right through to The Wonky Donkey was my grandmother's favourite book to read to her grandchildren. And it was the last thing she read to my grandchildren and was laughing hysterically with her grandchildren before she passed away that night. You know, so it goes from the very flippant stuff to the very deep stuff. Um, you know, so that when I'm on tour, not only am I having fun, uh, for myself, but I know that there's totally some good moments going to come out from me from me touring. So that's that gives me um, a lot of motivation to tour as well. But also, I love seeing the country or the world. There's so many fascinating things to see and people to meet. It's really hard to poke holes in what I do. I can make money from it, so that's good. I have a positive effect on situations, that's good. And then I get to see the world and meet fascinating new people, that's good. 
you know, there's just so many um, fun things that I love doing it. And well, this is one thing I've definitely learned to do, and that is not take things for granted. You know, I just, I really enjoy as much as I possibly can. I mean, you always fall into those traps, or woe is me. But, um, you know, you always fall into that from time to time. But I'm getting better at just enjoying every little moment. Yeah. Well, sitting where I'm sitting, Craig, I see some amazingly creative and healing elements to all that you do and what you do. And on on some level, I'm wondering if in some ways what you're doing is you're traveling around and sending out through your music and your writing and, and your gift for being with groups and kids and, and inspiring them, I suspect, maybe on some level you're providing many children with a role model, a father that you never had, but you, your your own loss has become everyone else's gain. Yeah, I think you're right there. I think there's parts of that that I'm, it's almost like I'm healing myself in a way when I'm helping other people find those those moments. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is such a beautiful story that you're telling us, Craig, in your life, really. That, And I believe every life is a story, uh, worth a story, actually. I believe every life is. You talked about travel there. And I know from one of your, one of the favourite songs of yours, and I love, love a lot of them, I was absolutely mesmerised by one of your songs uh, where you talked about the connection and the love you have of this Otago region that we're in right now. Yeah. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that or even just talk about that song. I can't remember the title, but that's the, it's called 45 South. And that's the title track of my album, 45 South. Um, and that's about, you know, obviously we live in on the 45th parallel um, or thereabouts, depending how fat you make the line, the imaginary line. If it was to be super thin, it would cut through pretty much the building of the Skyline Gondola for those who have ever been to Queenstown. And it pops out around Luggett and, you know, just just slightly sort of southeast of Wanaka there and goes right through um, coming out around Palmerston sort of area. And so that 45 South region, whenever I have been away for some time traveling and then come back, I always feel like, oh, now I'm home. As soon as I hit that sort of that boundary, and especially I, I travel down south. I've got a little log cabin down south, and I love going down there, a place called Monawai. Um, but driving back, I come along the Devil Staircase, and driving back into Queenstown, and there's that that moment of I oh, now we're home, you know. So I just write about that feeling of being home and the safety of it and um and just just the beauty of it and of course the remarkable ranges here kawara manga kawara uh, is the maori name and um but it was named the remarkables for for obvious reason and that and and the chorus is uh, her beauty is remarkable and a lot of people think i'm talking about a woman um or singing about a woman but i'm not i'm talking about hitting that range and just seeing its beauty and knowing that I'm home. Well, on that note, Craig, I'm going to bring this to a close. And I wonder, is there anything else that you would like to share before we close around, you know, I, I feel like you've shared so much around 
what drives you, what makes you tick, as we say, what gets you out of bed in the morning, what has meaning for you, and and even how you deal with stress. A beautiful gift to everyone who's listening, I think, that, that just put a pen and a pad beside your bed and jot down everything before you go to sleep and then just leave it. Um, and uh, I actually tell my clients to to also when they wake up in the middle of the night with a dream to write the dream down as well. But then I wouldn't. Well, that's good advice for musicians as well. You know, like, I mean, that's, or any, anyone who's a writer, write your dreams down. That's often you think, Oh, I won't forget that. That's too, that's too good a dream. And then all you remember in the morning is I had a really good dream and I should have written it down. And that's about all you remember. That's the craziness of that. Yeah, I guess, you know, being on this platform and how this radio station got started, we were talking a little bit more about what gets gets me motivated. Uh, you know, I, as you know, I went to the um, Parliament grounds about a year and a half ago uh, as part of the protest. I was only there for four days. But I wanted to play for the kids that were there. And I was incredibly motivated after watching on TV what was going on there and how there was people who were disenfranchised. There were people there who had thought they were doing the right thing and followed what was going on and then had been injured and they just wanted to be listened to. And the fact that no one came out, aside from, from Winston Peters who, who came down and walked around, no politician came out and wanted to talk to us. And um, so now I've got a new motivation <laughs> and that is to try and I feel like there was a lot of bullying going on there. And I, I'm a true believer. I, I, I believe that the people in power truly thought that they were doing the right thing. And I've had discussions where people say, no, no, they're, they're part of a bigger thing. I actually think that they truly believe that they were, which in a way makes them actually worse because they're, they're super passionate about what they're doing and they think they're doing the right thing. And so uh, ends up being a situation where where they end up bringing in laws and rules that were very uh, problematic, in, in my opinion. And we're breaking the Bill of Rights, things that we'd written down and all agreed on as a country long ago, that these were the right things to do, and the impact that they had on families. Everyone was in the same storm, but my boat was a good boat. You know, like I was able to weather that storm better than what I saw some people hap happening around me. And again, I think it's just connected back to that, you know, not a fan of bullies, not a fan of hypocritical type situations. So now sort of I haven't forgotten and I know a lot of people out there haven't forgotten what happened. And, um, you know, I'm going to be a bit more vigilant in the future who I vote for and, uh, you know, who I put up with. So, um, yeah, that's another thing that motivates me. And I believe during that time, didn't you do something with the children around having, you know, stories and things during lockdown? Yeah, so I, I flew to, um, obviously, to Wellington, but then from my home, when we were in lockdown, I did um, quite a few concerts for free for the kids out there that were stuck in their houses. Including my, my daughter helped me out in a few of the shows. She got some puppets on her hand and, you know, did that sort of stuff. And the first one I did had, had an audience of 82,000 people, which was amazing. <laughs> uh, 
that was around, you know, there was people in Scandinavia logging in, and the UK and the US. I made sure I did it at a time that was compatible overseas for people to watch. Couldn't do it in, in all the countries, but um, yeah. So by the end of that, as I said, 82,000 people watched. And, and then I did a few others after that as well, and they were all fun to do. Yeah. Well, for all your history and your background, Craig, uh, I suspect there are many, many people who would simply adore for their children or for them to have, as children, to have had you as their dad. I really acknowledge your journey and I acknowledge all the wonderful things that you do. Thank you uh, so much for sitting in the psychotherapist chair today. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for thanks for your uh, for your interview. It's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much. And this has been Reality Check Radio. Uh, you've been listening to me, Jerry Pipes, in this episode of Real People. We've been, I don't think, listening to. I've been enthralled by Craig Smith as he sat in the psychotherapist chair and has shared some of the things that are important to him and shared the story of his life. Um, thank you very much for listening. Hang on in there because I'm going to reflect on this and going to think about some useful psychological models that we can use this as a launch pad, this interview to think about that can help us to uh, manage and navigate the stresses and traumas of life. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Yuri. Wow, what an interesting guy. I could probably listen to Craig all day long. And if you want to hear any more about or from or, you know, of his stuff, just type in the the wonky donkey man on YouTube and uh, you can subscribe to his YouTube channel and just see a whole lot of stuff from him. Or just go straight to his website, which is www.craigsmith.com. So what can we learn about mental health from Craig's session? There's so much there. I'm just going to cherry pick, or you might say jerry pick, a few key things that I think are important here. I wonder if you remember him uh, in the session talking about how he got to sleep at night. And I said a fair amount about how important sleep was. Um, sleep is so important. I thought that would maybe be the first thing we could talk about. And I just want to endorse. I mean, Craig said it all. If you go to sleep worried about things and you keep, you take those worries with you, then it's going to be very hard to get to sleep, isn't it? And he recommended a, a superb technique, which is to simply write down on a pad of paper next to your bed, just before you go to sleep, anything that you think might be concerning you. And literally, you know, take it out of your head and put it on the paper. <laughs> um, it reminds me actually of a several scenes in the Harry Potter series when Dumbledore puts his wand to his head and he takes out a memory and he drops it in to a bowl or a basin. And in some ways, you know, I like to think of that at night. If I've got a lot of worries, I just literally take them out and I put them on a piece of paper too. I use this technique a lot myself. So it's a very uh, excellent technique. Interestingly, in addition to that, you might also have something that you're trying to work out. You know, there's a problem that you haven't solved 
And one of the things that's really powerful about this is by kind of writing it down, it's almost as if I'm instructing my unconscious mind that, you know, I'd quite like this problem to be solved by tomorrow morning. And, you know, the number of times I wake up with an instant solution, as soon as I wake up, I know what the answer to my question is, you know, how am I going to deal with this person? Or what am I going to teach tomorrow? Or I wonder what's really going on for a particular client. And, you know, I wake up in the morning and I have a new clarity about that. So what's remarkable about this little technique is that it does something really profound in that it's our conscious mind speaking, if you like, to our unconscious mind. It's like opening a doorway before you go to sleep. So what can be let in is the power of our unconscious mind. And that's why many problems actually either get resolved or you wake up in the morning and you realize, I don't know what the big deal is, you know. And I would also add that this works if you wake up during the night and you're tossing and turning and things are bothering you. You know, it actually makes good sense to switch on the light or or to you know, sneak out to another room and just jot down what you're worried about. Write it down. Don't get too involved in it. <laughs> don't start trying to solve it, but just write down and then go back to sleep. And this is a great way of just giving yourself permission to sleep. And what it does is it's a win-win because even if you don't wake up with the problem sorted out, you wake up refreshed because you've had a good night. You haven't been tossing and turning. So it's a kind of a win-win. I could talk a lot more about the relationship to the conscious and the unconscious and what the unconscious is, but I feel like there are so many valuable things here and I want to focus on a few of them really well. So while we're talking about sleep, let's talk another area of sleep. And it's so essential that almost every person I have ever worked with, there has been a sleep discussion somewhere just to make sure that the person I'm working with or the students I'm teaching understand the really centrality of sleep when it comes to processing trauma and to releasing trauma out of our system. Sleep is, in fact, one of the places where trauma kind of gets sorted out. In my book, which is all about trauma, Touching Trauma, Building Resilience, which you can only get on my website, I actually write about the sleep issue as being rather like, imagine a, a librarian at a university. And all through the day, the students are coming in, they're taking out books and, and they're leaving them on the desk and not taking them back to the library. And the, so at the end of the day, when the library closes, you've just got loads of books all outside. And you could think of those books as what you've accumulated in terms of trauma. Things that have happened, some of them good, some of them bad, and some of them actually potentially either traumatic or they trigger us into ancient or historical traumas. So the book might be not a trauma in itself, but it might remind us of other traumas. And every time we get reminded or triggered of a trauma, we actually re-experience some level of that trauma. I'm sure you can all think of moments when uh, someone has just said something and you felt yourself go into a different state. It can happen several times a day, actually, where you suddenly feel threatened or insecure or vulnerable or or that you feel that uh, you're under under attack 
for no no reason at all, perhaps. Someone just happened to mention a word or a phrase that triggered us into some past trauma. And we might not even know. And if you remember in the talk with Craig, in the session with Craig, he actually talked about how these triggers, for no reason that he could work out, would suddenly hit him. It's been there in all of these talks. When we think about this library full of these books, some of them triggers, some of them good experiences, and some of them not so good, and some of them really, really bad. Some days we just have a really bad day, don't we? Now, what happens at nighttime in most university libraries is the night staff come on because they know that by the end of the day, they're so busy that there's going to be a whole bunch of books to sort away. So they pay someone to do the night shift. And the night shift in a library involves the, the night shift librarian wandering around the library with a trolley, picking up all those books, which we could say in the library, we're in our conscious mind. All right. So this is what we carry with us into sleep. But if we go into proper deep sleep, then we do what the librarian does. All those events, all those books, if you like, the librarian gets into the lift and they go down into the vaults where all the books are stored because there's so many books and there's just a little space in the library for people to read. So the librarian goes down and just quietly through the night, trolleys around with the trolley, putting each thing, each book into its correct place. So this book belongs in this section of my life. This book belongs here. This is where I make sense. And some books are, I don't know where this goes. And there's probably a pile of undealt with stuff as well, if we're really, really honest about this. But the vast majority of our day's experiences get filed away by this night shift librarian, nice and gently, slowly, probably stopping for a muffin and a cup of coffee somewhere in the during the night. No pressure, no big stress. There's nothing happening. And that's why sleep is so important, because while nothing is happening in the here and now conscious world, this gives the unconscious time to literally place everything in its right place partly so we can always find it and refer to it and grow and learn from it. So we have connections from different sections. You know, this particular trauma belongs in this area of my life, and it connects with these lessons that I learned when I was younger. So this is how I like to think of sleep, because sleep really gives us that space. And if we're not having that space, just think if the night shift doesn't turn up the next day, we start the day with all these unresolved traumas, with all these issues that haven't been filed away, we have not processed. And processing our life is as important as living our life. If we just live our lives without reflecting, without processing, without managing the meaning of that life, then we're living a, a meaningless life. I mean, last time I talked about the significance of finding meaning in our life. Well, if we just live our life busy, 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 and we don't give time to reflect, to quieten down before we go to sleep, to sleep well, to create a life where there is space for reflection, then what's happening is we are removing meaning from our lives. And your life has meaning. My life has meaning. Every life has meaning. But you know, if we don't work out what that meaning is, there's not a hope that anyone else will understand what meaning our own lives have. And one of the great joys of meeting someone like Craig is to share and understand and in some ways celebrate the meaning of his life. Because we're all kind of 
here together. We're all we're all swimming in this kind of soup together. That's a bit of a mixed metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> the soup of life. We're all a, an ingredient, aren't we, in the soup of life? I don't know about the swimming bit or where that came from. But what I am very interested in with sleep is also there's some very simple things we can all do with sleep. There's lots of research on this. One thing is get out in nature every day. You know, do not go to bed without having spent half an hour in a park, outdoors, um, seeing the beauty of nature, no matter where you live. Find a place nearby with trees. Just get out and walk in nature wherever you can. And if there's absolutely no nature around, then really plan your weekend so you can find a way to get out and get to nature. Nature is our greatest healer, in my opinion. And here in New Zealand, we get a lot of healing, don't we? Um, It's just amazing. Second to that is it's very hard to sleep if you haven't really been awake. In other words, if you haven't moved a lot in the day, if you haven't had exercise, then you're not sufficiently tired to sleep. It's kind of fairly straightforward. And so doing 30 minutes of, you know, walking or swimming or whatever exercise you enjoy doing, whatever gives you real pleasure, then if you haven't got moving in the day, sleep is going to be very, very hard. And there's the more obvious modern issue, which is that these screens that we are surrounded by, these mechanical, technological things, they emit a whole range of EMF frequencies that are not natural. They're really not part of how the world was meant to be. And so really make sure you shut down everything that you can at least two hours before you go to sleep. That's really the first thing I wanted to talk about, the power and importance of sleep. As I've said, a great deal of my life is about trauma and understanding how we can help trauma and nature exercise and making sure that you have some kind of rituals for sleep. Every parent knows that going through the rituals of getting ready for sleep is a really important element of good parenting. And yet many of us may have missed out on that. So start parenting yourself, you know, think about um, stopping work, switching off the machines, doing something nice, put some nice music on, maybe do some gentle self-healing exercise, maybe read yourself a story, you know, with a book. Remember those things? Yes. Um, The great thing about a book, of course, is that it means you've got no EMF radiation coming at you. Well, whatever really works for you, um, start winding down, play a game of chess or a board game with someone in your family. Whatever starts to slow you down and then think about what you like to have. Do you like a hot drink? Uh, Have a nice relaxing bath in the evening? Find out what works for you and initiate a ritual. And generally, once you start to build a ritual and you do the other things, sleep will almost always come. And also, while we're on sleep, one of the things that came out was a reference to dreams. Now, dreams are really, really important. And so I, I would also write down, I do write down my dreams. You know, you wake in the night, the dream is very, very vivid. And you have a moment, a short window to write it down. And otherwise, you go back to sleep. And in the morning, you just say, oh, I did have a dream. I can't remember what it's about. Now, why is writing down our dreams at night important? It's your conscious self, your will, your mind, stating something really important, which is that this journey, this finding of meaning in my life, this is an important thing. I'm committed to it. If if you're not committed to your own life, then how on earth can you expect others to be interested or be a part of that life? You have to lead the way by being interested. Now, I'm not talking about narcissistic self-obsession here. I'm talking about a very healthy awareness of the self. 
Of course, we want to have awareness of others and of our environment as well. And when the awareness of the self excludes other people, then it's not really awareness. It's a form of narcissism. Dreams are, in many ways, a message from our unconscious. Some people would say our higher self. When you physically switch on the light or write down the dream, move your hands across the paper, there's a physiological action going on here. And when you do that, it's like your conscious mind is reaching out to your unconscious and saying, I value you. I take notice of you. I'm not going to ignore you. And you see, what happens is that actually stimulates more dreaming. <laughs> so if you don't dream and you just have one really boring gray dream, write it down anyway and say, I felt bored by this dream. You know, just, just write down how you felt about it. In some ways, that sounds like a beginning. Oh, well, we should anal analyze it. Not necessarily. Simply acknowledging the presence of the dream can be a powerful uh, opening of the doorway between our conscious and our unconscious mind. Now, the unconscious mind is another really big subject, and I'm, I'm kind of almost drowning here in the depth of these subjects, and I could talk for days on each of them. But let's start with the simplest of things. Let's start with the idea that just by writing down a dream, I acknowledge it, and I'm opening up a pathway between my unconscious mind and my conscious mind. And you see a lack of health, our illness, our disease is often the result of the conscious mind ignoring the far bigger and more powerful unconscious mind. It is, in fact, our unconscious mind that rules our life. So it's worth listening to, because if we don't listen to that part of ourselves, then that part of ourselves has to speak more loudly in more distressing ways, and sometimes even with physical sickness or mental sickness. So opening the channel, opening the doorway between the conscious and the unconscious mind can be something as simple as simply writing down your dreams. So what else do I want to talk about? We're talking about sleeping. We're talking about what has emerged from the session with Craig Smith, the wonky donkey man. And my name is Jerry Pipes, and this is Real People uh, in the Psychotherapist Chair. I think in all of this, as well as the sleep, what's behind all of this is taking our inner journey seriously, taking our journey through life seriously, as well as being accused of being narcissistic. And by the way, it can get that way. If you're becoming obsessed with your own journey and you're not really relating or hearing other people, that's a good sign that you're going into an unhealthy track here. So keep checking out with other people and with your environment that what you're considering makes sense. We're all here together to help each other. And it's very easy if we just reflect on our own to come up with some pretty crazy ideas. In fact, we're surrounded by these pretty crazy ideas as if what one person thinks of themselves is a kind of reality. Well, actually, that's a mental illness. Um, there's no two ways around that. If you cannot relate to others and, as it were, acknowledge and perceive how others see the world, then you are heading down a very inward, narcissistic kind of direction. So be careful about that. You know, watch out for anything on social media because the algorithms just agree with you and they actually create mental illness because they're not giving us enough different opinions. And ironically, some of the people who are being most kind of aggressive about their views of the world are saying they're talking about diversity. But here in relation to our inner journey, 
I do want to just landmark that warning sign that we should be checking out with the people who are, as it were, other vegetables in the soup with us. They're all, we're all in the same soup. So other people have very important insights. I call it checking out reality, C-O-R, uh, core. Check out reality and um, be willing to hear different views. That said, we are talking about taking your inner journey seriously. Is it selfish? Oh, we should be busy helping others. Well, just look at Craig's story. I mean, Craig clearly takes his inner journey seriously. You just listen to the interview again and notice just how much he values and thinks it's important to understand himself and to grow and to develop as a person. And this apparently, which some people would call selfish activity, <laughs> this is what meant that he has been able to touch literally millions of people. The wonky donkey has had something like, I think it's uh, millions of views. Uh, it's amazing. And where does that story come from? Where does the wonky story come from? It came from him. It came from his journey. You know, he told us about the drizzly bear story, one in which uh, I read my own grandson, and how in metaphor, he's telling children that if you've got these worrying thoughts, you need to put up an umbrella and put on a, a raincoat. You know, well, that's the writing down your your worries on the bedside table, isn't it? So it came from him. It came from his own exploration of himself. And yet he was able to use that. And that led to him putting together, so spending two weeks learning how to make that remarkable sound, which I can't make, I'm afraid. Um, but think about the wonky donkey. You know, what did he say about that? Well, the wonky donkey is a story about not fitting in, us all being a little bit quirky. Everyone's different. And many of us have experienced the feeling of not being the same as other people, not fitting in. And this is a beautiful, beautiful message. I can imagine Craig growing up, a family of six, no dad around, struggling. And, um, you know, I can imagine going to school uh, I actually remember going to school myself in a very similar situation. I, I would go to school and, you know, when you have no father around, uh, boy, do you notice how many children have fathers? <laughs> it's like, you know, what's wrong with us that I don't have a father? You see them at the school games. I mean, very vividly, just to share a little bit from my own journey, because this isn't about analysing Craig now. This is about what works for us. And we're talking about you know, valuing our own journey. Craig valued his journey, and that resulted in him writing beautiful stories and songs that teaching children that it's okay not to fit in. Uh, I can remember, you know, uh, about the age of seven or eight, being dropped off by my dad to a football match. And I was thrilled that he actually was around and that he even turned up. And But then he disappeared. I suspect he went to the pub. And, you know, I was playing this game in the cold rain. I can vividly remember it as I talk to you. And I'm playing this game of football and it's my first big outdoor 11 aside. I'm really quite scared of what to do. I, I mean, I know the game. I love the game, but it's still a big game and lots of people, lots of space. I'm quite small at seven, you know. And I'm yeah, I'm seeing all the dads, you know, on the on the bylines, and my dad isn't there. And then I can vividly remember at the end everyone going off, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And the school teacher, a very kindly man, said, "You know, do you want me to wait with you?" I said, "No, no, my dad's coming. It's all right." So he goes off. It was, you know, it was a long time ago. It was um, it was about fifty five years ago, actually. So people were a bit more cavalier about that. That wouldn't happen today. Of course, the teacher would wait. 
And I just remember standing by the roadside outside this football pitch, you know, waiting for my dad to turn up. And he turned up and, yeah, there was the smell of that deadly smell. Well, to me, it was a deadly smell of alcohol and just feeling that, you know, I was different. Everyone else had a different had a, had a life that seemed normal and I didn't fit in. Now, what Craig did with those feelings, you know, he channeled it into great creativity. And what did I do with it? Well, from a very young age, from the age of 18, I was trying to sort myself out, trying to understand why I found so much in life a challenge. And, you know, was in therapy myself at a very young age. As soon as I had any money, independence, that's where I went. It wasn't very fashionable all that time ago, but uh, that's where I went. And that led to me becoming a therapist. And, you know, now I, I spend most of my life helping people get over traumas like that, different traumas, different stories. But I've used that trauma to not only understand myself, but to use that understanding to help others. And this is the essence of trauma, that it's not what happens to us, it's what we make of it and how we how we use it to grow. So, um, yeah, that's really, um, if you want to learn more about trauma and, and my story, um, just go to my website, uh, www.jerrypives.com and uh, listen to, uh, read my book. Uh, buy my book there. It's the only place you buy it. I won't sell it on Amazon. And um, you can just get it there, audio and ebook or, or in print. Um, but yeah, that I tell my story there. And you see how my own traumas impacted on uh, my own life. I don't share that because I think my life is anything special. I share it because this takes us all the way back to taking our own journeys seriously. You know, your journey through life matters. It's the only story you've got, you know. Um, what's that funny saying? Uh, I guess I'll just have to be myself. Everybody else is taken. Make something of that. Find your meaning. Last time it was about find your meaning. And this is really about, well, how do you find your meaning? Well, here's a really simple technique, just... Jot down your dreams, jot down your worries, and get a good night's sleep. <laughs> it sounds so simple, doesn't it? And yet, giving yourself permission to get off the treadstone of life and reflect. And, you know, well done for hanging out with me here on Reality Check Radio, on Real People, in the psychotherapist chair. Just the fact that you're still here listening to me suggests that you do take your life seriously, and I applaud you for that. And I encourage you, and I hope the story of Craig and his life has inspired you to regard yourself and your journey as significant, not necessarily just in its own right, but in the impact that significance can have on others. And there we see the end of narcissism and the beginning of humanity. Um, narcissism draws us into what separates us and makes us different, and real exploration takes us into a greater and greater connection with the glory of other humans and the glory of this amazing and beautiful world. Coming up next is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. 